0: What's up, Geekscapists? Welcome to a brand new Geekscape episode. I'm Jonathan London, and if this is your first Geekscape, I like to sit down in the worlds of pop culture. That means movies, video games, comic books, uh, tech, uh, and sometimes music. And I like to talk to storytellers and people who create stories in that space and really get behind like why they do this and why they put themselves through uh, really what I call modern alchemy. You're taking something and making, you're, you're taking you know your influences and you're making something out of it that didn't exist before. Uh, and uh, and there's a lot to be said about that, and I'm really fascinated by it, so that's what I'm doing, Uh, and if this is not your first podcast with us, uh, welcome back. (laughs) Geekscape's been around a while, and we've talked to a lot of storytellers. My guest today is a return guest. We last had Blake Harris on the show five years ago. He's the author of Console Wars, which was a book about uh, it was narrative nonfiction, and I suggested it to all of you and continue to suggest it to all of you. And it's a narrative nonfiction, uh, r- real journalistic deep dive into the period in the late 80s, early 90s, when Sega, with their Genesis console, really took it to Nintendo's market share here in the US. And obviously, that means Sonic the Hedgehog taking on Mario one-on-one and um, actually cutting into the market share uh and uh and you know i was a kid when that happened sonic was my thing and the genesis was the first time i really saved up a ton of my allowance money to buy the genesis and um so when console wars came out i had to read it i had to have blake on the show and then we've been friends ever since uh blake welcome back to the show man hey jonathan thanks for uh <laughs> being a uh,
1: big supporter an early supporter of console wars i really appreciate it um and thanks for having me back on.
0: What's crazy about it is that, for those of you guys who are listening right now, this is the second at-bat that Blake and I have had with this podcast. Uh, yesterday, we were in New York together, face-to-face, and we just couldn't find a quiet enough place to record. So I'm still in New York, Blake is back in, in Queens, and uh, we're recording over Skype. <laughs> we're like recording over, over the internet, and we're within miles of each other, which is insane but just as it goes to show I don't really have a place in New York quite yet where I can go to. I I'm, I'm staying with friends and the friends have like a 6-year-old and a 2-year-old and dogs. So that is not a quiet space. Um and I don't really have another quiet place where I can sit and um record a geescape, but here I am in the business lounge of the apartment uh in the condo place and uh, I think you might hear some kids here and there. There's a pool nearby. There's a basketball court nearby. There's a freaking bowling alley down here. What? But yeah, dude. There's a bowling alley in the basement of this condo building. Wow. It's one of those It's like one of those really nice ones that are in Chelsea, like over by the west side, uh, yeah. and it's pretty pretty posh, but uh, but this is what I'm doing. I'm sitting down in the I'm kind of like sitting in a corner over here in their business lounge and recording a podcast with you, Blake, (laughs) which is insane because you're a few miles away. I know. Well,
1: I feel closer to you, and I at least saw you (laughs) yesterday for the first time in a couple years, so that was very nice.
0: Yeah, it was great having lunch and catching up and just uh, really having a bro down that we haven't had. Yeah. I mean, the last time you were in L.A. was a few years ago for E3. Well, at the least last with, time it, I told you yeah. I was in LA. I mean, yeah. Well, that, that goes without saying, <laughs> you Hollywood types. But the last time we connected in LA was was sort of uh, a year or two after Console Wars had come out, and you were at E3, and it kind of gave birth to this brand new book, Geekscape. if you're listening to this uh, this week, next week. Blake's new book, hit Stands, Uh, you should pre-order it right now on Amazon, especially if you're a fan of Console Wars. If if you have not read Console Wars, throw that in the uh, checkout uh, with uh, this new book, because you're going to want to read both of them. The new one's called The History of the Future. It's Blake's deep dive into Oculus, uh, them being sold to Facebook, and really the rise of virtual reality, which was something that 10 years ago... um, wasn't really on our radars. Uh, how would you describe where we were on virtual reality 10 years ago, Blake? And obviously, we want to talk a little bit about Console Wars and Sega Nintendo and just everything, man. Yeah, <laughs> I want to get so, down. Yeah.
1: Oculus was founded in 2012. And I would say prior to that, virtual reality was essentially considered uh, like a technological punchline, like flying cars or jetpacks. You know, it's like this thing that we have all knew from science fiction and from Back to the Future too, but, like, that was never really going to happen. And the efforts to make it happen most recently in the 90s with uh, a lot of VR efforts were a huge failure financially and uh, creatively. So, uh, you know, it wasn't really on anyone's radar, which was part of what made the story so fascinating.
0: Well, what were the hurdles in the late 90s? Because, I mean, even as a video game nerd and a Nintendo nerd, uh, we all remember the Virtual Boy... That, that didn't really cut it. And it seems like recently uh, a lot of the things like even uh, the installation-based VR that, we, that we've seen uh, is all kind of like tethered. And, right. having a te- and having a tether in VR just basically means that you're going to sit in place and spin and shoot at things. And you're still going to be using a controller for mobility, uh, which isn't really a virtual reality thing. It's just a video game with a cool headset is what it feels like.
1: Right. No, it's a good question because some of the technol or some of the challenges, not even just technological, in the '90s um, have been solved, or you know we've come far enough that that's why VR at least has uh, you know an honest chance here. And then some of them are still the same friction points of just putting something on your head and getting people to right. try to do that for ten minutes, twenty minutes, two hours a day, whatever they want. Um, and and one of the interesting things is that you know I think that. In, in a nutshell, the new book is about how Oculus um, basically resurrected the consumer virtual reality industry, of course, with a lot of credit going to a lot of different people and other companies. But that's the main narrative. And if you talk to those people and, and when I ask them, like, all right, let's say you guys started Oculus 20 years earlier in you know, the, 1992. Um, how would it have been? You know, how how successful would you have been? And they all said that they would have failed. So. That adds an interesting element to the story, where even you know, to talk about the word that you used earlier, alchemy. Um, there is timing as a big component of alchemy, um, or whatever you know, you've got, you got the mixture that you're putting together. And uh, so, even these brilliant people who were successful in this endeavor, at least successful enough to start a company and sell it to Facebook for three billion dollars, less than two years later, they don't even think that they would have found much success in the '90s. And a lot of it is, um, you know, graphics.
0: Um, Yeah, everything looked like Goldeneye.
1: Right, but then that's also, (laughs) you know, then it gets to, yeah, compared to today, the graphics of VR in the 90s were terrible. But then again, as much as I love Goldeneye, like, those graphics compared to games today are terrible. So at least it was on par with what you were doing at the time, especially the, like, in-location, the uh, on-location VR stuff, like at malls, like Dactyl Nightmare. Um, I think a lot of it uh, kind of venturing into the more technical details is, is has to do with tracking because you know you could get a vr you know a vr looking headset or something that you're using to cover your eyes and you know look at a virtual look at a computer image but unless you actually track the you know the, the user's head movements, so when you move left it you know the image stays still and you see more leftward of that image it's basically just a TV strapped to your face, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're just basically scanning the screen and the screen has right. been short, shortened for your purview.
1: Right. So it's like, it's the tracking that actually creates a big part of the sensation that you're there because like in real life, when you turn your head, everything you're looking at doesn't move with you. It stays in its place and you see something different. Um, so that technology really um, evolved a great deal and became much more affordable due to cell phones. Um, you know, and, and I think the, the first thing that anybody at Oculus would thank is the developments made in the mobile space. So that was a big part
0: of it. Um, that wait, wait, that, that's crazy because you wouldn't. I mean, for somebody, I'm I'm not a techie. I'm just not. But um, the technology being the same thing that keeps our GPSs up to speed. Yeah. For, you know, for, so so the, so the Pokemon Go geocaching technology, that stuff is the thing that. Is used in virtual reality to scan our head movements. Right. I mean, it's it.
1: it's like, right. I mean it's like
0: a, la- a layman, a layman, soap. chromag version of it. <laughs> you, you have to, tell, you have to use the chromagman version of the explanation <laughs> for me.
1: <laughs> but, but yeah, it's really cool that um, at least now uh, smartphones and and mobile, the mobile space technology seems so different than virtual reality. Um, technology, but but mm-hmm. the, the the origins of this generation of VR is so much based on the mobile technology,
0: and you can um, tilt, and you can tell tilt, and you can tell direction, and exactly, be, yeah, exactly. no, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. Yeah, yeah.
1: and and uh, you know, but I, but I would say that like one of the more interesting things is. One of the main characters of this book is Palmer Lucky, who was 19 years old when he founded Oculus. At the time, he was living in a trailer. And as I described to you yesterday and on the inside jacket of the book, I love this visual of like at the beginning of the book, he is this teenage kid, homeschooled, living in a trailer. And the trailer basically looks like Walter White's Meth Band, except instead of meth, it has like 20 different virtual reality headsets at very, stages of development. Um,
0: that's, ins- wait, that's insane.
1: Yeah. And, and, um, you know, so so he, like you know, it, it has readily admitted to interviews and talked to me a lot about how fortunate he was with the timing, how fortunate he was to be born at this point, or you know, to be working on at this point post cell phone um, industry. But at the same time, um, talking to him and other industry experts, you know, basically his invention, the early prototype of the Oculus Rift, which set all this into motion, could have probably been made five years earlier. So. And the reason it was him and not Sony or Microsoft or some other, you know, more uh, inventor with more experience than him or someone. And,
0: resor- and resources.
1: Yeah, more resources than a 19. It's usually the, the most trailer.
0: important thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. it's like uh, It's like we were talking about yesterday. Just nobody cared. Like VR was a punchline. If I had told you, like if I had called you. In 2012, before I even knew you and but, hey, Jonathan, you don't know me. It's Blake Harris, but I'm uh, in starting this VR company. You would have laughed at me, like VR—that thing died in the 90s. It was such a flop. And uh, and so Palmer, Lucky, and you know maybe maybe at most like a hundred other people used to congregate on this uh, web forum called Meant to Be Seen 3D (MTBS 3D) and. This was just where these few people that still cared about VR and believed in VR would share their projects and help each other out and, uh, you know, find the, their, the few fellow supporters who were interested in this stuff.
0: That was like a Reddit. It's, it was like a Reddit forum. It was like one of those, you know, it's just like a group of people that just didn't, That they're the ones who cared. And, yeah. uh, and what, were, what were they doing? They were using cell phones. What kind of technology were they using? Were they using carryover technology from the 90s and the 2000s to, to put this stuff together? Were they using failed Sony Microsoft it's, entries into, really the, into the place?
1: Especially because one of the first um, you know, subcultures that I got introduced to as I got to know Palmer was this, uh, this hardware modding culture. Um, you know, modding being short for like, modifying. And sure, sure. Um, it's like this hacking tinkerer. Um, culture that, um, you know, I knew was out there, but I guess I didn't realize how strong the community could be um, on places like the Ben Heck forums, or even a web, uh, a forum that Palmer started called Mod Retro. And so, you know, at first, when I would think like, wow, like, this 19 year old kid is the one who, who did it, who pulled off this thing where no one else could. And even if it, he was a beneficiary of technological advancements, like why him? It seems so unlikely. And then as I start to really break it down and understand his interests, it actually starts to seem much more likely, um, you know, not living through the scars and the failures in the 90s probably helped to some degree. But but it actually began for him because he had this web forum, Mod Retro, where him and a bunch of his closest now lifelong friends would take um old usually consoles um or or handhelds you know like game boy n64 genesis nintendo nes super nintendo and they would um try to portableize them well i guess the handhelds are already portable so they sure
0: sure but, but they, would, they would take like an n64 and try and make it a portable exactly
1: and it would just be yeah. like you know they'd be sold- soldering stuff and hacking it up and you know very much like self-taught school of engineering. Um, and, and it was like, you know, it was very fun for them, it was collaborative, it was a competition, like, oh, I can make it smaller than you. And so, you know, virtual reality, like you said, being like Virtual Boy in the 90s and some other failed products was something that was um, inherently fascinating to to Palmer Lucky and his friends, um, whereas you would think that the normal um, person born in the late, in mid, or, you know, he's born in 93. 93. Um, like, we didn't really have an interest in old things, but he had that this interest in old consoles and and then basically modernizing them and making them cheaper because um, mm-hmm. he didn't have a ton of means himself. And, uh, and then, you know, the end result was after three years of work and eventually a, uh, a part-time lab technician job at, at um, USC's uh, Mixed Reality Lab, which is, like, one of the few places in academia where VR was still being researched. Um, he... Invented this headset called the Oculus Rift, and he started a company called Oculus. And as he described it on his original website, that never really saw much of the light of day. It, this was his tilt at trying to make VR work, where it had failed so much before. And as we know, um, it was a very successful tilt.
0: Um, Blake, uh, it, the Palmer reminds me, of, and I know that Ernest Klein did the intro to your book. Uh, he did the yeah. forward. Um, he reminds me the kid from uh, Ready Player One. Like you're, you know, in Ready Player yeah. One, he's got he's got all his gaming stuff to enter the uh, what's the name of the place in the uh, in Ready Oasis. Player One? Yeah, the Oasis. The Oasis. Yeah, he's got all that stuff to enter the Oasis in his van, like in the junkyard or wherever he lived. And like uh, he reminds me of that character yeah, from Ready no, Player a One.
1: Yeah, parallels. I remember I, I, I spoke with Ernest Cline. Because his work was so influential on so many of the people that I interviewed throughout the course of this book, um, and also myself, you know, I, w- I probably wouldn't have written this book if not for Ready Player One, because it sort of showed me um, how what this future could be like, and and done in, in an accessible way. And I shared my first chapter with him, and he was almost like laughing and like wow, like I didn't like he he knows Palmer pretty well, but he didn't even know Palmer's backstory and how similar it was to. Uh, to Wade Watts and, and uh, yeah, it's just a nice little, uh, fiction meeting nonfiction twist.
0: Um, but Palmer was 19 and he's living, he's living in the van or just using it as his lab? Um,
1: <laughs> good question. Cause, was,
0: cause yeah, like was, how does a 19 year, like where <laughs> I'll sound like a, like an old grandmother, where were his parents? <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: All right. So, um, his, so the, the van was parked in the driveway of his parents, um, who had uh, the bottom floor in a split house, in a two-family duplex duplex in Long Beach. Um, Okay. And what had happened was...
0: They ain't living there anymore.
1: You know, sort of like like the character in Ready Player One, uh, Palmer was very uh, obsessed with his interests, more so than school and other, you know... (laughs) other such endeavors um and and he you know he went to he started taking college classes very early at like 16 um clearly a very brilliant guy but uh he he was becoming much you know more and more interested in VR and this technology and his and um was basically like looking to drop out of school and his parents um didn't want you know basically kicked him out of the house if he wasn't willing to go to school but being loving parents they didn't want to like totally kick him out and make him homeless so they bought him um this used 19 foot trailer that he was living in and then actually that was like probably a year prior to starting oculus and then when he finally decided to um start oculus and drop out of school they sold the trailer so there was this interesting period of time where he starts this company that within a matter of two months goes on kickstarter and raises a few million dollars and sort of becomes the darling of the indie gaming tech world and for a period of time, he was, like, technically homeless. I mean, he,
0: he, 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 he Yeah, uh, let, me, let me get the timeline right. So yeah. he, he has this three-year period where he's starting Oculus, knowing that he's going to go into this around the age of 16, 17. He's already started taking college courses. 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there, he's a year, two years into starting Oculus, He's he Well I would just clarify and say that Yeah, he he but he he decides twenty
1: twelve. But he was like you know working on VR stuff for three years. Yeah.
0: But 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 he decides to drop yeah, but he just decides to drop out of school like two, three years two two years into this endeavor. He decides to drop out of school and um because of that, almost loses like this he, he gets put into this uh, his mobile home, and then the thing gets sold out from under him, and now he 's right. got no place as soon as he 's going to do the indie version of going public, which is a successful <laughs> Kickstarter yes yeah, and so, so during, because I think uh, our own Derek Cranevelt and some of our Geekscapists were excited about that original oculus uh Kickstarter or part of it that 's around the period of time that lucky was homeless
1: yes, and you know I, <laughs> oh, man. Like, uh, you know being homeless is a very serious issue. So uh, I feel, you know, I should say he wasn't living on the street. He ended up, he was living in his parents' garage for a couple of weeks before they found But his
0: lab was gone.
1: Right, but his lab was gone. And he was not happy about that. And one of the, I remember early on, you know, Palmer's a very interesting, eccentric, and polarizing character. And I remember early on, you know, one of the first glimpses that I really got into, you know, what kind of a different guy he is, and, and what a fun character he is, is there is a version of this narrative that is kind of sad and pathetic, you know, um, getting kicked out of his home and then getting kicked out of a trailer and living in this garage and not really knowing what's gonna happen. And that was all true. He was worried about his future, but, but like he loved living in that trailer. Like the, his eyes light up when he talks about it. He, t- he described mm. it to me as like living in a spaceship and you have everything you want around you and mm-hmm. you know, i don't think, feel like that would be my experience living in a trailer so i was like all right this, this is a fascinating guy but yeah um while you know it's, it's a really exciting first few months of the story in real time uh, like basically like may june july august 2012 palmer has a uh, long distance girlfriend who uh, he's still with and she was in colorado and she moved out during that time so she actually had a home where while he didn't have a home um, just a lot of fun stuff, fun personal stuff going on while him and then his eventual co-founders were starting Oculus.
0: And that is all in this book. Us uh, again, the book's called his- The History of the Future. Uh, go put it in your, uh, uh, go, go, go find it online and pre-order the book. Uh, it's on Amazon. There's going to be a audiobook version that's uh, released, I think, day and date release on that one, Blake?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's the same day, February 19th.
0: And who, uh, who's doing the audio reading? Um,
1: a guy named Stephen Graybill.
0: Cool. Cool. Um, you've got that. And obviously Geekscapes, I want you guys to pick up Console Wars if you haven't read it already. I don't see why you wouldn't have because we've been talking about it for <laughs> five years. Um, and uh, one of my favorite memories was uh, a, few, a year or two after Words, because Blake and I met in person at Comic-Con. Five years ago, Um, and that's how we met one of our former writers, Eric Francisco, uh, as we all went to have lunch together. And uh, Eric was supposed to meet you, and we and I met Eric through you. Yeah. But and and Eric and I became very good friends, and he ended up writing for Geekscape for a long stretch, which is funny because (laughs) because I'm like, wait, who did I meet first? I met you first, Blake, and then a year after you you brought. Tom Kalinski over to my booth, and I almost had a uh, a heart attack. The guy who created Sonic and He-Man and all of that, like standing in front of me, I got to shake his hand. <laughs> that, was a, that was a pretty incredible moment. Thank you.
1: Yeah, Tom was and still is, you know, one of my biggest role models. Um, he he would tell you that Jonathan, I did not create Sonic. I led a team of people um, who did, and and that's. You know what i think it, I, i'm most proud of with console wars is, is just the ensemble element and of course even in the book you know get you know telling the story through the team there's still so many more people who don't get mentioned and who who are a part of this and that's you know another one of the, the challenges and fun parts of this book is that it is such an ensemble story as it, most things in life you know even palmer being a you know like the proverbial uh lone genius or whatever it is like none of this would have happened if he didn't um, have some luck uh, connecting with legendary game maker John Carmack and with uh, a bunch of entrepreneurs including you know like who ended up one of them became the CEO and you know it's just it's just really fun to see all the different steps of of how things come together and wh- and wh- whether they lead to success or to more complicated situations
0: well how do how do the uh, uh, how do the us know John Carmack I mean You and I talked about him, but but I mean, for those who he's not a household name for, why should he be a household name? He's the person who came in with his video game money. Uh, By the time he's an icon, and he goes into a partnership with this 19-year-old kid,
1: uh, actually no, he he doesn't, which ends up leading to a lawsuit. But uh, but
0: okay, okay, put me in, put put it all in order for me.
1: Sure. Um, Well, so first of all, I would say John Carmack is as close to a household name as you get amongst game developers, um, which to your point is not, you know, my mom does not know who John Carmack is, but John Carmack is one of the co-founders of id Software. He's the man largely credited with creating the first person shooting shooter genre with games like, um, you know, doom most famously and Wolfenstein and quake and all these games that really push the limit of technology and genre. And, um, you know, he, he's known as a very cutting-edge guy, a very interesting, eccentric genius himself. Um, he started a rocket ship company back in um, in the... Like, like, 10 years earlier. And so, actually, what, what he told me was that, you know, he would crunch on these games for two, three, four years, and then after finishing a game and shipping it out, um, in this case... What was the game? In this case, in 2012, it was Rage. Um, mm-hmm. And he would take, like, a little... Like an R&D vacation, I think is how he described it to me, or like a little research period where um, he wouldn't necessarily be doing this for professional sake. But, you know, he's such a lover of technology. He would see what's he would pick a, a project and sort of get into it. And one time it had been rockets and that led to him creating Armadillo Airspace. Um, and then in 2012, he was just interested in virtual reality. And basically, like we were talking about earlier, he just kind of really hadn't thought much about VR since the 90s. And he, his thinking was like, surely in the past 15 years, the technology has come so much further and there must be amazing, awesome stuff I can go out there and buy. And then to his shock and horror, there wasn't. Like, there were a few consumer VR headsets that most of which cost one to $2,000, Um and, and in John's words, were like really crappy. And then mm-hmm. there was also VR headsets that were being used by the military or by academia that would cost tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, which was really like, you know, not meant for consumers. Um, and so John was just like a little bit shocked um, because, uh, you know, he, he realized when he started looking into it, like, yeah, the technology from cell phones alone has helped make, could make this so much better. Um, and so he's looking at prod- products made by Sony a uh, company called Imagine, um, and and then he ends up hearing a about, hearing about um, a hardware hacker named Palmer Tech uh, um, who, who's known to frequent the MTBS 3D forums and uh, then looks into Palmer's work and contacts Palmer and asks if he can borrow one of his headsets to potentially um, demo a VR version of um, Doom 3, which which his company was going re- re- to be uh, re-releasing, if you could borrow Palmer's headset to potentially demo it at E3. And his plan originally was to show off three or four different headsets with the same demo and show one headset that, you know, showed what, you know, good latency would look like and one that showed what a high field of view would look like, which was Palmer's, and, and you know, demo these different things. But then over the next month, as he was trying, to, you know, trying out these different headsets and, making some tweaks and trying to optimize the software, he just realized that the headset that Palmer made was so much better than what else was out there, and let alone so much cheaper. Um, and so John demoed the, the Oculus Rift prototype at E3, and that's really when uh, like mainstream, or at least gaming mainstream, um, attention started to turn towards virtual reality and this fascination that um, you know, probably caught the attention of, you said, Derek, like like people like that, people like myself, really started to brew. Um, and then coming out of E3, where, as we noted yesterday, um, a lot of people incorrectly credited John Carmack as the inventor of this headset. And to John's credit, he warned Palmer in advance that that was likely to happen, even though he would do everything in his power to make sure Palmer got proper credit. But uh, anyway, coming out of E3, Palm, there's a... This is a minor early spoiler, but there's a lot of, you know, Early, Palmer's offered a job to go work at Sony, uh, which was basically a dream job to him. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that became something that he passed up because he uh, met a group of entrepreneurs and was persuaded to continue with his own company, with Oculus, that he was, you know, launching and to to try this himself. And then he did, and they launched a Kickstarter and they were super successful.
0: And Okay, in in the entrepreneur, uh, those entrepreneurs only found him because of John Carmack's presentation at E three. For the most part, like that's really what got the ball rolling to the Absolutely. point where I where mean, he didn't have to take this job.
1: Exactly, like yeah. they were, um, you know, not, they they didn't they weren't directly introduced from John Carmack, but right. they hurt, you know a friend of a they friend sought him out basically. Um, i like one of the characters told me uh, i always liked it he he made a comparison you call them
0: characters but these are real people oh, yeah, that you've interviewed right, for so this one book. of the yeah.
1: scientists at oculus the way he put it to me was that it was like um like it back to the future Two, when uh like uh, when mark what is it marvin Berry calls it chuck berry uh, oh no, no, yeah it's
0: no, no. Okay. back to the future one and he goes you oh, yeah. want he goes he goes get a load of this and he holds the phone up
1: yeah exactly I, I just always have Back to the Future 2 in my mind. But yeah, and like basically this guy... <laughs> that's because
0: we're, li- we're living through it. <laughs> this
1: guy, uh, you know, one of the few people who had stayed in the VR industry was a friend of, a, of an entrepreneur and you know, um, product guy named Brendan Arib and he calls up Brendan and he says, Brendan, you gotta check out this new headset, J- John Carmack demoed at E3. And Brendan's like, Oh, VR, like, you know, VR is not, not happening. Um, but mm-hmm. he's convinced, or he's persuaded to at least take a look, especially after he goes online and he reads these articles and he sees these demos. And then he has a dinner, um, in, uh, June, 2012, uh, with him and like six of his entrepreneur buddies, and Palmer, and they persuade Palmer to uh, not, you know, not sign with Sony, and to do his own thing. And then over the next few weeks, they convince Palmer to do his own thing with them. <laughs> and uh wow. And then a month after that, they or a month and a half after that, they launched the Kickstarter.
0: They did what?
1: They launched the Kickstarter.
0: No, launched the Kickstarter. So, um, so that gave them their seed money, and uh, and they were off and running from there. Right. Um, so. John Carmack and, and and Lucky were never actually partners.
1: No, they, um, you know, they they talked a lot and they were collaborative in the sense that John is a software genius guru and and had made a lot of modifications to the Doom three game that he was releasing to make it work well with VR, which includes things like you know doing the chromatic aberration and these other technical details that optimized it for. Palmer's headset, and you know they were just this perfect peanut butter and jelly pair of hardware and software. Um, and so, the like the, I would say, I, I you know I want to make clear that it was a mutually beneficial relationship, but it wasn't sure. a formal relationship in any way, other than the fact that that John publicly said he was going to make his game compatible with this headset that Palmer was building. Um, but then, and that and that becomes significant because John continued um, developing that game and others. Oculus until his company um, id Software, which had been, which was then owned by Zenimax or at that point had already been owned by Zenimax, um, then didn't see any money in VR and didn't see anything beneficial in this relationship with Oculus and told John to stop working with them. And then a year after that, Oculus sells to Facebook for $3 million and Zenimax comes out of the woodwork and sues Oculus and Palmer and Facebook and Brendan Areeb and wants millions of billions of dollars, billions of dollars.
0: But did they win that lawsuit? Is it still going on?
1: It's still going on. They won parts of it, but they didn't win the part... Like, um, they didn't win any of the claims that the, that you've seen in the press, that, like, technology was stolen. The claims that they won were mostly about, like, false designation, meaning that, like, when Oculus went to to, to investors, they had an image of John Carmack in their deck because he was consulting, sure. they made it seem like... You know, basically stuff that I would say is all true. Um, but... The, the the charges have, with each appeal, have been reduced, and I think that they just reached some sort of settlement, but um, I found it to be a very merit-free case. And
0: um, question for somebody who's like a, con- like a consumer, like one of the geeks capists. Um, if I have like a PS4 VR mm-hmm. uh, or an Xbox One VR, like I've played, you know, uh, Derek and, and company are always talking about um, how they're playing on vr and uh even like a ps4 pro um i told you yesterday that i that i was not into vr and remain not into vr until i until i went and checked out one of the void installations oh there's kids running by. hey kids (laughs) (laughs) um I went to check out that Void installation yeah. down in downtown Disney and did the whole Star Wars Void experience, and it was untethered. I'm running between rooms that are yep. being reskinned over and over again. It's rumbling. There's heat. There's levers that I'm pulling. There's physical things that I'm holding like blaster guns. That was the first time that I was like, "Wow, this this VR is incredibly immersive. It's a full entertainment experience. I'm not tethered to my living room, swinging things off of my shelves." Right. Um, how different is the technology that maybe uh, Palmer came out with, or in those early years before Facebook, uh, and how how close is that to like something that would be in uh, a PlayStation VR? Or on an Xbox One, or that I experienced in the Void. How different is that stuff? Sure,
1: that's a good question. I mean, it's all a spectrum. Um, uh uh-huh. The like the Void, what the what the guys at the Void do, and the installations that they have
0: are. And I hope the geekscape us know about this stuff because it's really yeah. cool. You can go and do Ghostbusters. They have an original story, but the Void installations. If you're in LA, New York, or I think Florida, they're really worth going to check out. Those are some awesome. Yeah, experiences it's pretty much in like
1: as good as it gets in terms of what's being done right now in terms of about the content. And also just the technology, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's like a big, I don't know, 40 by 40 space that you're navigating through and they kind of guide you, but that's, you know, it's, it's an ultimate experience compared to the, you know,
0: at home experience. You're, you're not tethered. Like you're not, you're not sitting and spinning uh, out of fear that you are gonna run into the walls. It's so tightly mapped to the walls to like the centimeter that, I have really felt like I was there, and the room can rumble, and there's heat. Right. Very. It was. It was incredible. I really recommend it to all the geeks, and I've talked about it on the show before. If you're a long-time listener, but how different is that technology? Is is that Oculus? Is that something, or is that a competitor? Are there competitors? I think
1: that they do use Oculus headsets. Um, it, it's it, it's either that or HTC Vive headsets, but I believe that they're most recently using Oculus headsets. And the, I mean, the answer is that it's way, way, way better than what Palmer was demoing and what he sent to john carmack but what made palmer's thing so special was that it you know had surpassed whatever um abstract threshold it needed to to make people go holy shit like it it was enough that it that it made people feel like they were there so um you, you know probably not that, that, that illusion of being there probably didn't last as long as it would with The Void, but at least it was enough that it actually could trick your brain and make you feel like you were in a computer-generated video game world.
0: And if I'm playing on my PS4 or my Xbox One, like the, the VR for something like that, how does that compare? Because that's a tethered system, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean... The like the kind of stuff that Palmer was originally doing was meant for the PC because he was a PC gamer and PCs generally, mm-hmm. or at least the way like souped up PCs are more powerful than a PS4. So, um, you know, the PS, PSVR, which I think is amazing and awesome, especially for the price, you know, that's probably not, at, it doesn't have as high fidelity and as great a quality as the Rift or the HTC Vive, both of which don't share as much, of the quality of the you know the whole void experience, so it's just different tiers. Um, but I think it also gives you a sense of where we're headed. Who, you know, in two months from now, Oculus and Facebook are releasing uh, the Quest headset, which is the first really untethered six degrees of full freedom headset, um, and the one that they think or hope is going to really hit the mainstream.
0: Okay, so that one's untethered, and that Oculus. Uh, one is set up for what's it's for for pc only or is that something that sony and microsoft are going to get in on
1: sure so right now um or at least let's even say what the while palmer was still at the company and what they were doing you know they basically had two types of vr experiences there was the tethered uh, vr experience connected to a pc Which was high end. That was the Oculus Rift, and then there was mm-hmm. the mobile VR, which was like essentially putting like uh, like snapping in a cell phone, a Samsung Gear, a Samsung cell phone yeah. into the Gear VR. I, I've
0: never cost, been sold like, on that thing. You know,
1: it was a cost between like fifty and a hundred dollars, and uh, and then you instantly your smartphone would be your screen and your portal into that world. Um, and those were like the two areas that they were focused on. They were primarily focused on the PC in the PC, PC space, and that was like, you know, when they'd have the, each demo that you'd read about in the tech, like, each new demo which was amazing, like, that was the PC side of things.
0: And what's funny is that Legendary, who now has the rights to your book, Console Wars, who's making it into a series, uh, my first experience with the, the cell phone version of that is a couple years ago at, uh, at, at, at Comic-Con, ooh! Uh, a couple of years, I'm in the business center and there are kids running around. Um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> let me get my mode of thoughts back. The uh, legendary, who were our neighbors at Comic Con, they had uh, the cell phone uh, experience with a movie like I think they put out uh, one of the Guillermo del Toro movies, and they wanted you to walk through one of his amazing sets uh, that they had brought into a VR, and they, they had it on one of those phones, and you. You, you could just download it on your on the app and then drop it into the cardboard setup and walk around it and i was never really sold on the whole cardboard setup thing i was right. like okay because because it, it is a very limited experience you are just moving and scanning your head back and forth um but this non-tethered thing that comes out you're saying it comes out in a few months um how are people not going to destroy their living room <laughs> With this thing, Cause, is there is there a part of this technology that also scans your room? Because uh, Microsoft and Sony both had pretty advanced stuff with like the Sony Move, and uh, and is that am I getting that right? Because Xbox also had one of those where it was motion control stuff, and it was on the tail end of right. it, it was as a result of the Wii. But remember the Sony Move and yeah. the Xbox's version would scan your room. Yeah, the Kinect. And, right. The Connect, yeah. that was it. The Connect, and the Connect, you could move her about your, your space, and see uh, a, a version of your living room in the Playscape on your TV. It seems like those technologies together, an untethered headset and something like the the, the Connect, would work pretty well to give you a void like experience. Right. But, well, I mean, but the Connect is abandoned. That stuff is all. It's like we got to bring that stuff back now.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the, I guess the, the non super satisfactory, but somewhat short answer is that um, like at least with the Rift now and, and most of the other headsets, you are setting up cameras and tracking devices in your home. Mm. So there is a way for it to know what's around you. You, you can fiddle with the settings or, you know, the games try to take or the experiences try to take these things into account. Um, the companies are very conscious of not wanting lawsuits and having you crash into things. Um, but, but you're also getting a key point, which is um, towards the end of the book. And I'll, you know this book is different than consoles because this is playing out in real time, so I, a lot of the stuff's in the news. So it's not like spoilers. It's not really like breaking news here or anything. But like yeah. the the main difference between the Oculus Rift and their primary competitor, the HTC Vive, um, is and or at least especially was when it came out that <coughs> the the Vive was room scale, so it wanted to optimize your I think up, it, it alleged a fifteen by fifteen space. Um, so you can, you know, use a whole room or use your apartment or whatever. Whereas the Rift very intentionally um, went for just a seated experience so that you feel like you're there and you can move your head and tr- look over your shoulder and all that. But where you wouldn't be asked to be moving all over the place because of safety reasons and also just because of, you know, not a lot of people have big, uh, big homes or apartments, especially um, in, in some Asian countries where they expected the VR to be popular. Um, and and real estate is, is even more expensive. Um, so it was like a differing philosophies because you know oculus basically came on the scene by promising the cutting edge of VR and then the consumer product they put out was not as cutting edge as it could have been um, but they had their reasons for it. but again, you know like I don't it, that had an impact on the market
0: <laughs> and you're saying that this new version that's coming out that Facebook and oculus are putting out here in a, in a, in a bit um that that is untethered is it also a seated experience or is that something that you're supposed to get up and go around
1: that's a good question i mean it's not a seated experience but it's also one that because it's time to
0: lock up the china you gotta lock lock up the really nice dishware.
1: (laughs) yeah yeah lock up your china lock up yeah i mean this one is not tethered but but content wise I, i would say that they've strategically tried to limit the amount of movement to some degree that you would, mm-hmm. would have um, and there, and there's techniques that you can use things like redirected walking where you you, you can trick a, a brain into thinking it's moving in a lot more space than it really is so that you're you know th- literally your footprint is smaller than it, than it might seem like it would be um, but but yeah like I mean it'll be interesting to see how people are using and and um, Especially as we sort of transition more towards the convergence of virtual reality and augmented reality, um, and, and you know whether this becomes something that people will wear in public. I mean, the end goal and the, a big part of the reason why Zuckerberg, you know, personally like led this deal and wanted to buy Oculus is because, as he had it in this presentation, like ten years from now, or I guess eight years from this point, like he he envisions a basically something that looks like a pair of eyeglasses that lets you do VR and AR and just for listeners um, you know they actually look the difference in the most rudimentary form a virtual virtual reality is when you're fully immersed in the computer graphic world and augmented reality is when computer graphics overlay the real world so more like Terminator vision more like I can look at you right now. And like, in like sort of a Black Mirror sort of situation, it would say, like, Jonathan London, here's his address, here's his likes, you know, like, or whatever. Here's but his like, followers, yeah. Yeah, versus a fully immersive virtual reality experience where everything around you is is virtual world.
0: Um, they're not going to be contact lenses?
1: I mean, that's part of it, too. I still don't even really understand all this, because, like, I am a glasses wearer, and I, I hate wearing glasses. I, I'm not... <laughs> I'm curious how much... People want to wear glasses.
0: Dude. Dude, I think I told you yesterday. I've spent a week sleeping with a CPAP machine over my mouth. Yeah, like I'm, am fi- finally like trying to check off the list of things that I've needed to fix in my life, yeah. and uh, and my sleep apnea is one of them. And anybody who's shared a room with me at Comic Con understands that it is a violent experience. The snoring is so bad, <laughs> um, but not this Comic Con because Johnny's got a robot that helps him <laughs> breathe at night, and uh, and it has been, you know, I've done it for four nights so far. And uh, No, I've done it for six, and um, and four of those nights have been successful. Two of those nights, one of them was hellish, and I ripped it off and was like, <laughs> no. But, but as a filmmaker, I've always thought that augmented reality was going to, f- you know, obviously 3D is something you put glasses on your face and you watch a 3D movie and this and that, but I see it going beyond that in augmented reality where we're watching a movie, and because of the fact that we order the tickets on our phones and the phones are also where we ordered our books and we ordered our music and this and that and it this very well that the the advertisements and the product placement in the movie that you watch is different than the person next to you because we have an augmented screen, not necessarily just a 3D screen, but you have a screen where if Blake and I go to the movies together, Blake's getting ads for Pepsi and I'm getting ads for Coke, but we're watching the same movie through our 3D glasses. That's augmented reality. Right, virtual reality just means those ads are in the computer game that we're surrounded by.
1: <laughs> right, I mean, and you can um, do targeted advertising in virtual reality yeah. too, which is something that people are concerned about with Facebook being the owner. Oh, of Oh, well, Second Life, but like, but but, but you're right. Wait, did you say Second Life?
0: Yeah, I mean, Second Life was yeah. w- is. Is quote unquote virtual reality? You just didn't strap it to your head, gotcha. but it is—it is a different reality that a lot of people got immersed in, and there's there's still a lot of those online communities. Lord British is a big part of that. Um, remember R- Richard Garriott? I was a big Ultima fan because yep. I grew up in Austin, and Origin and Ultima were like the big thing, and because it was local. But Richard Garriott, I think, has a pretty vibrant online. Gaming experience, either him or, or uh, Chris, Chris Roberts, who created uh, Wing Commander. I think those guys have always tried to make online PC MMOs in that space that are pretty immersive. Second Life, but with questing, I guess.
1: Right. I mean, in a way, most, uh, like a lot of computer games and video games are attempts at virtual reality or are virtual reality, but without the glasses. In fact, right. one of my favorite parts from the, uh, the 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 three billion dollar zenimax first oculus trial was like zenimax tried to make the point that john had made some statement john carmack had made some statement years ago that like everything he'd been doing had always been virtual reality in some form so they tried to basically be like aha we invented virtual reality and john you know has been working on this all these years so you owe us money but yeah i mean like that <laughs> is always what a lot of this is and um and that certainly speaks like the, like what you're talking about, the second life and the, the sorts of social experiences is, is a lot of what attracted Facebook because mm-hmm. Facebook was a very unlikely suitor for Oculus um, because Oculus was at that point almost purely a video game company. Like if if, if if someone had heard that they were acquired, most people would have assumed it was either Sony or Microsoft or maybe Nintendo. People weren't really thinking about um, the tech companies, but as you also mentioned, like there's a lot of advertising opportunity um, in in literally being able to shape people's realities. So um, there was a lot of reasons why Facebook wanted to get in on that.
0: Right. So um, it, you gave me a copy of the book yesterday. I'm excited to crack it on the on the plane back to Los Angeles. But you wrote a few things. You wrote. Um, and this is, maybe this this can be a warning, or, or something, not a warning, because Geekscape is by this book, uh, but if you were into console wars, this is not just console wars 2.0, you wrote, I warn you in advance that this book lacks the warmth and nostalgia of console wars, particularly the final 100 pages, but I'm pretty sure this will end up being the best thing I ever do with my life. Are you not going to have kids?
1: Um, I don't know. <laughs>
0: I'm no. messing with you, because man, yeah, If you have well. kids, if you have kids, let's hope Uncle Jonathan doesn't show them this <laughs> little signature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, That being that being said, um, you, you you single out uh, the the last hundred pages, and you also say that this is the best thing you you'll end up doing with your life. Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> Just as sure. your friend, uh, and having not read the book yet, like what are you talking about?
1: Um, so to me you know, the final hundred pages of the book almost feels like a completely different book. And, and it's, um, you know, it, it, it toggles between two stories. It toggles between, um, you know, four years, it basically like we flash forward a couple of years after the acquisition and Oculus is now part of Facebook. And, and we toggle between the launch of their first product, the Oculus Rift, the consumer version. And then eventually, um, the, the the firing of Palmer Lucky the founder um, and 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 you know and and the po- political aspects related to that and by po- political like politics and political aspects I don't mean office politics or that although that is part of it but I mean literally that he is a Donald Trump supporter and that played a huge role in his exit. There were other circumstances and um, a fake news article that we talked about at length yesterday that I can get into here. But like, you know, through both of those experiences, just the actual selling of the pro- of, of a product and then then how someone with a certain political view um, experienced Facebook and, and ended their tenure there, I feel like this book gives an – Incredible, unvarnished look at Facebook, unlike any that I have read, really since like the, since the accidental billionaires, um, and and given the outsized role that Facebook now has in our day to day lives, with over two billion users, I feel like it's just really important, um, and and it, it especially like you know Facebook often you know publicly and internally. They talk so much about openness and transparency, and they have signs to that effect hung all over their their campus. Um, but when you know news broke that that linked Palmer Lucky to supporting a Donald Trump organization, although it was reported in an inaccurate way that made it seem way worse than purely being a uh, a supporter of a politician who's not popular amongst a lot of his colleagues. Um, you know the process that followed. And, and his eventual firing was just so the opposite of openness and transparency. They never told employees what was going on. They, 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 exiled him from the office for essentially six months. Um, they kept telling employees that he kept asking for more vacation time. And then mm-hmm. eventually after six months, um, they notified employees that, that he was leaving the company. They didn't even say whether he was fired, whether it was his choice, anything like that, and they just never provided any information. Uh, and I feel like the handling of that situation says so much about um, our current political discourse and especially about Facebook as a company and and things that we should be concerned about or at least um, aware of as, as they continue to have a larger and larger role in our lives.
0: Now, you're friends with Palmer.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've I've, I've spoken to him um, almost every day for the past three years. Though, of course, after he was fired, he was not allowed to talk about a lot of things with me. But yeah, I mean, I, I would I would call him a friend, a lot as I would with a lot of the people in this book. When you when you talk to someone but, so frequently over a period of time, you get to know them, and, and and in most cases, like them.
0: But you, but but I mean, if he's you don't agree with his politics, I mean, correct, but you. Obviously, you can still call him your friend and and i, I have a lot of problems with people who uh, are like, "Hey, if you did this, just unfollow me right now oh, because yeah. I, 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 I I just think that that our discourse has become so uh, <laughs> you know binary that it 's like i right. 'm over here and you 're over there, and i can 't talk to you if you have a differing opinion that i mean the way I describe it on the show." and to friends is that we are all in the middle of a human centipede, where we are only sw- <laughs> okay. I mean, we're all- I mean, like, th- your Twitter is just a, your your Twitter is just a simplification of it. Right. You're, you're, only follow- you're only following people who you agree with and eating their excrement, and then you're only excreting it and feeding it to the people who follow you because they agree with your opinions. And, w- and we all just find ourselves in the middle of the human centipede, and you know what? You don't want to be in the middle of the no, human You and only to want to be in the front.
1: Whether, regardless of what what you would label my relationship with Palmer, he was someone that I spoke with and speak with a lot. And 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 although I was pretty shocked and and it, and in the moment a little surprised maybe and disappointed that he, to learn that he was supporting Donald Trump when I first found out in you know like May or June 2016, I also wanted to use that relationship to do the opposite of what you're describing, that this was someone who I felt that I could talk about anything with. And I wanted to understand why, you know, what did he like about somebody that I found, I find Donald Trump uh, despicable in so many ways, but clearly he feels differently or at least doesn't prioritize the things the way I do. And, And in those conversations, I felt like I learned a lot and also got a better understanding of why a lot of other people, um, see an appeal in, in Donald Trump. And so that was, that's was that been very valuable to me.
0: Yeah, my worry is that there's a lack of altruism in a lot of the choices to follow him, is that you follow him because you agree that what he's saying is right for you, but um, you know, we did talk yesterday about the idea that, like, a lot of people saw Trump as a culmination to our foreign policy of being involved in a lot of different places and pulling us out of places like Afghanistan right. and Iraq and Syria and uh, and the worry is at the same time they're going to lack the diplomacy to do those things properly yes I understand the goal of pulling us out of a place like, like Syria currently but um, it's ignoring that you broke it you bought it Yep. Politics and we're—it's lacking the diplomacy of, ext- of extracting ourselves properly, and so it goes back to the idea of this um, sort of idealism of like, oh yeah, th- this is just going to happen pretty simply. It's not going to happen simply if you were less idealistic and a little more altruistic and realize that these things have to happen in steps and it's a long process. Right. Um, you wouldn't be such a bull in a china shop. No, you know? I totally
1: agree. I mean, um, like to me, one of one of my many concerns oh my with, with Donald Trump is that you know, as as it seems, you know, I, I don't follow the politic, the day to day politics that much, and most uh, you can't you you'll, you'll, you'll,
0: you'll year, destroy your brain. I've
1: tried not to so much, but but just from like a distance, it's it would seem that. I, I remember being when I did follow it a lot more. I was very upset by how I felt like he was treating our allies and and the impression he was sending and his um, rhetoric about breaking agreements and basically using our whatever leverage we have to basically say, "All right, well, we don't like the terms of these agreement anymore." Almost like a you know, like an NFL player saying, "Yeah, you know, I did sign this contract, but I'm outperforming it, so I, I want a different contract." Um, and and you know they were all
0: skeptical of whether or not he's on the take. You right. know, and just a a, a a mouthpiece for Russian policy. I mean, there's a million ways you can go about it. I I I, I don't mean to are but oh. ultimately it shouldn't get you fired.
1: Right, right. Well, that's the thing. Like um but my point with that was just going to be that I worry even if I even if I agreed with more of Trump's policies I still think the way he goes about it, like you were saying, the, the type of diplomacy he does is ultimately um, very damaging to the future. Because, I don't know, like, if you just break agreements now, why would any country trust an agreement you signed two years from now, even if it's not him or if it's a different president? Like, sure. if, you've, if you're proving yourself to be a country that um, – or, you know, an organization that doesn't stand by its agreements um, – Than, than, like you know, the you break it, you bought it thing. Like I, I I don't know. i just, I guess I, I like the idea of accountability, and and a lot of the stuff he says and does is the absolute opposite. But, but to your point,
0: (laughs) but also um, being unilateral, because you know, the the first Gulf War under Bush Senior was a unilateral, it was a unilateral operation. Now we're talking about an invasion of Iraq and invasion of Afghanistan, and. I, I feel like we're in the third term of the Bush presidency, <laughs> the Bush <laughs> junior presidency. I mean, honestly, it's like this is just a dumber, more tweeted version of the Bush presidency where you're just doing whatever you want, yippee ki around the globe, and not worrying about 100... 100- years down the line with what we're left with. So you're just going to pull yourself out of these environmental agreements, you're going to pull yourself out of the unilateral agreements with your with, with your with, with fellow companies, uh, fellow countries you're going to pull yourself out of uh, being on stable ground with the United Nations you're going to pull yourself out of all and it's just like dude what are you doing that's what makes us suspicious that you are absolutely a Russian mouthpiece, an enabler that being said to bring things back to our conversation it shouldn't. Your politics should not get you fired. Right. Um, at least not from behind so many closed doors.
1: Right. Well, at least and, not. You know, I think I would. I would probably feel a little bit differently about it if, if it was sort of uh, what I would describe as like a beyond the pale sort of politics. Like if you know mm-hmm. someone who was legitimately like a white supremacist or uh, an outspoken anti-Semite, and you know those are political views and. I guess everyone's in yeah hate, that, but, <laughs> like, hate,
0: hate hate can get you fired but like hate can get you fired and trying to spur sure hate can get you that can get you fired that's that's called uh, workplace uh, <laughs> harassment <laughs> it's like you're probably gonna have to work with some people that you are verbally hating about uh, hating on publicly yeah I can see how that gets you fired right but but what on here well, is just a difference in politics here,
1: where we're where supporting Trump being like one of the 60 million people who voted for him makes you synonymous with hate and and so i'm sure that the 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 colleagues at facebook who are reacting very negatively and some are even crying and wanting him to be fired immediately like they are to me they're acting hysterical but they're doing it because they have this like they think that they're responding to someone who's being very hateful um but like I said, there's 60 million people who, who voted for this person. And also remember, like this was at the time, we didn't know how his presidency was gonna play out. Like it's, I certainly might disagree with someone who voted for him, but I don't find that to be the defining feature of them and should not, their employment should not be based on whether they supported him. Or in this case, we should say he did make a $9,100 $9, $9, donation to an organization is what spurred a lot of this news.
0: And this hula Baloo is what the last hundred pages of the book are. Right. I mean, um, not, not exclusively. I, yeah. But 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 it's not exclusively, of that. course.
1: Um, and and like you know, I think one could say, well, that has nothing to do with virtual reality. Um, and there's some merit to that. But again, like I think I think about this in terms, you know, to me, Console Wars more than anything was like a story about people and also aim to capture this zeitgeisty feeling of 1990 to 96. And, and like you're talking about earlier, where you and I could be in the same movie theater and you see a Pepsi ad and I see a Coke ad, or maybe it was reverse. Like, like these, like Facebook is a company that wants to make those decisions for us um, mm-hmm. and control the reality that we see. And so I think that learning more about who they are, the type of organization that they are, the type of people who work there, or, and just basically their processes for making decisions and, and how they behave are is super relevant to um, the future of technology and and particularly v- virtual reality. Like I find, I still find all this stuff to be connected. Not I, well, I yeah. mean, It's very obviously connected because it's the same. It's a founder of Oculus, but just thematically, I see a big connection between the things.
0: Yeah, be wary of who we put the control of these these tools. Uh, whose hands we put these tools into. Right. Um, Because they they could just as easily be used against us. Especially, yeah, they're shaping our reality. Now they're going to be shaping our virtual reality. Uh, And I think for a lot of people who are facing the realities of social media addiction, of which Facebook is a large component, um, they're they're finding it to be mentally, emotionally, uh, and physically uh, more daunting than possible. I mean, in the past, I... You know, or currently, I I can admit to levels of social media addiction. And those things are directly tied into depression, loneliness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and I'd be surprised if Geekscapists who are listening to this right now didn't uh, think that their social media habits aren't, you know, aren't dangerous in some level to their societal habits and, and whether or not they're being... Uh, you know, hermit like the only people who should be hermit like are Blake Harris yeah. when he's writing another book.
1: <laughs> I
0: need to be hermit like, but yeah. That no, like this is all awesome. I love having these discussions with you and Geekscapists, Um I had so much fun reading Console Wars, it, but but obviously that was a serial that I was excited to swallow. Right. I was so stoked to to read that book, and it is one of my favorite books of all time. It's it's fantastic. This one is, as I admitted at the top of the hour, is not a subject matter I'm really enthused about. But Blake J. Harris wrote it, and if he treats it with even half the uh, approach that he that he used on Console Wars, then I can't wait to read this thing on the plane and, tomorrow. I love, I'm I'll super like that, super stoked about you know, it.
1: The first 300 pages are super fun, and, and all of it's like kind of fun. So it's not it's not a downer book. Um, just the end. Is not at all what I expected when I started recording on it, and 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 it is a bit of a downer,
0: <laughs> right? But you you know you've just given them some sugar. Now it's time for the rest. Now right. <laughs> here's yeah. some medicine. Um, if things do uh, continue with lawsuits or uh, the merging of technologies, corporations, etc., uh, is the paperback book going to have to have addendums to it, or 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 changes? That's or will great, you just move on to question. a 2.0 oh
1: it get, because it gets because because as
0: you said you were in the midst of this
1: right I mean it gets to the heart of what has been like like this experience was so different than writing console wars and not just because I was dealing with a major big success organization like Facebook um, whereas with console wars I was minimally dealing with Sega Nintendo because most of the employers weren't even there anymore but But yeah, this story was happening as I was writing it, and I didn't, and and, you know, like originally I didn't know how heavy the book would be on Oculus versus other companies and other players in the space. But what I found was that like every day, and I worked on this for basically four years, and and like you know, every day on the sites that I'm visiting, like VR sites, there's like some new like you know greatest thing ever, and I don't know what's real, what's going to pan out. I'm interested in all of it, and sort of as as this. As the scope of the landscape widened, I felt like the best thing I could do was to narrow the scope of the narrative um, and and almost think about it more like Mad Men, where if you're going to tell the story of advertising in the 60s, instead of telling it from 10 different agencies, you tell it through one, but you can still tell the story of what else is going on. Um, And so, you know, I I turned in my my latest draft, or the draft that resulted in the book in your hand in December, so only like a month and a half ago, Um, there's already a bunch of things that I want to update for the second edition, which will happen if, you know, if, and when we print, you know, sell a certain number of copies. Um, And then I'm sure that by the time the paperback comes out, which is, you know, typically like nine months or a year after the hardcover, I'm sure that there's going to be additional things that I want to add, addendums, little changes or things that now, T- take on more significance and I would want to provide readers with more insight into them. Um, so this book is also like much more of a living document in that way. Whereas Wars, I sort of sent it in and I felt like, all right, like done next.
0: Well, um, you know what? A, a paperback version of this with brand new addendums just means that you'll have to be back on Geekscape. Yes. <laughs> and dude, if you come to LA to talk about this book, let's go to dinner because I loved having lunch with you yesterday awesome. uh, and catching up, man. So, Geekscape is the book is called The History of the Future. Um, it's out in a week, but go ahead. If you're listening to this on the day of release, like, throw it all in your pre order. If you're listening to this week, two weeks down the road, a month down the road, a year down the road, or if this is just something like you, you fell upon and you're new to Geekscape, Go pick up the book. It's out. Uh, you'll enjoy it. And if you haven't read Console Wars, throw that in your checkout bin as well. Um, this book is amazing. You can also read more of Blake's uh, writing on Slash Film. He's got this uh, partnership with Paul Shear, former Geekscape guest Paul Shear, who right. does the podcast oh, How is, Did This Get Paul Made? Paul is
1: the nicest man in Hollywood. I have to say that because people Dude. think he is, and he actually is. He is really yeah.
0: Paul guy. Paul's awesome. But he uh, he does a podcast called How Did this get made and it's about really crappy movies and and what's funny is Paul's podcast he just uh, sits down and they talk about how these crappy movies got made uh, Blake then goes and gives them the console wars treatment of having to interview these filmmakers or have them on the podcast with Paul and he and, uh, and actually interview them about Probably the biggest failures of their careers yeah. or may have derailed their careers. And that's a really sticky interview, dude. It
1: is. Well, I actually, I contacted Paul because I was a huge fan. I didn't know him. But I said, you know, Paul, your show is amazing and it's hilarious. But you never actually explain how the movies got made. Because they basically, they're improv guys and they just riff on how bad and <laughs> yeah. stupid movies are.
0: It's more of an exclamation. How did this get made? Yeah, like, how, You're how actually you- wanting to know how this got how made. How did Junior Which- get
1: made? How did... Um, Kazam get made, like who was thinking this is a good idea,
0: let's put lots of Oh man, what's great is that if you guys have read Console Wars that bit on the chapter on the Super Mario Brothers movie is a taste of things to come, because that was a great chapter I never knew that Tom Hanks, Dustin Hoffman those people had been considered for the role, or that they actually had a working script that really was a nice script that just never saw the light of day if anything, Console Wars is uh, is not so much a Sega Nintendo book as much as it is just a book about an Eastern versus Western culture, and or at least Japan and American culture and the conflicts between them, the approaches between them. Because I found those those bits to be the the, the best revelations in cons- in console wars that weren't directly linked to nostalgia.
1: Yeah, thank um, you. I mean, I I intentionally tried to strip any nostalgia from my approach and writing to console wars, but people always tell me it's such a nostalgic book, and obviously they bring that to it, and that's awesome because that's why it, you know, it appeals to so many people. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I think I've told you this before, and I've said this a lot in interviews. Like I, I write everything I do with my grandma in mind. Like, how could I get her interested in Sega Nintendo? How can I get her interested in the making of a bad Mario movie? And like, you know, it's usually about finding the characters and and uh breaking it down like that but like you know for the, to the geekscapers out there totally understand if you've never tried vr if you have skepticism about it but i think that you'll like the book um or at least you know i always try to get out a bunch of excerpts because i want people to only spend their money if they think it's something that they will genuinely like so i want to make sure people kind of know what they're getting into so i'll so i'll get some excerpts out over the next couple of weeks
0: geekscapists you have your mission. Um, it's been awesome having Blake on the show, man. Thanks, Sean. Uh, hilarious that we are now doing the podcast virtual, virtually when we had it in reality yesterday. <laughs> uh, I find it appropriate and poetic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you guys can follow Blake on—he's on Twitter, he's on Instagram. He may not be on Facebook much longer once this book comes out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he is uh, go find him and uh and and tell him you love this book and uh and are a fan go follow him on social media uh is. you can always find us at geekscape.net we're redoing the site for comic-con you'll find us at comic-con 2019 right there uh and um and if blake is at comic-con he should come and sign some copies of the book at the geekscape booth um Obviously, uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, and, um, and we're trying to revamp some new things, so uh, stick with us if this is your first Geeks here. I really appreciate you listening this far. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We got tons of them in the catalogs going back to 2006. Uh, if only I had been smart enough to get in a mobile home and start working on VR, but I didn't have, neither the, pa- I didn't have the patience, discipline, or intelligence to do so. Um, But I started a podcast, and I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, Anything you want to add, Blake? No, just
1: thanks so much. Um, I'm a fan of you and your show, so this is cool for me and fun for me, and I look forward to coming back, um, hopefully soon.
0: Love you guys. Uh, Love you, Blake, and GeekScape Geekscape forever, over and out. Peace. You're listening to the
1: Geekscape Network.